We are in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 this morning. As I was uh, revisiting my notes today, as I do every Sunday morning, uh, I was faced with two predicaments. Number one, Lord, I really don't know how to communicate this, and it's Sunday morning. And I've studied and studied and studied and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled, and I'm stuck. Uh, And yet, oddly enough, number two, the truth in this text I think is so important I don't want to wait. I want to get to it right away. And I want it to sit upon our hearts all service long and all morning long. And, and that's why we're doing this. Uh, this preaching first thing is, is abnormal for us, but I think it will help us sing better and pray better and um, respond better as we consider uh, the significant truth in Luke chapter 9. Now, I will say this as well from a, a personal standpoint. The longer I'm around uh, the church, and the longer I'm around so many of you, I can say with complete sincerity, the more the Lord grows a heart of love for you. Uh, I love this church dearly. I hope that's a two-way street, uh, but if not, it's certainly one way. God is, is working within me an increased um, sense of commitment, a, an increased sense of, uh, of a desire for your well-being and your growth in the Lord and to, to know His Scriptures and to know the peace that He provides and, and on and on and on. And because of that, when I, um, when I get the privilege of praying for you in hardships or um, offering up meager advice to you, in times of confusion, uh, when I see you endure the normal everyday difficulties of life, I, I want you to know my heart is burdened for you. My heart heart desperately breaks for you. And, and uh, I think Jamie can testify as well. She knows what it's like to see uh, weeping with those who weep and, and bearing the burdens of others. And that's that's good. That's what we do. But because of that, when I come across a text like this that I think speaks to so many of our situations in life and so many of our hearts, I, I become maybe overpassionate about it to the point where I, I, my mouth is full of things I want to say. And I think that's this text this morning. We find a truth in here from a negative perspective where Christ is actually rebuking and issuing a rebuke, but the lesson that we can learn is so vital for so many of our lives because so many of us, in fact, every single one of us, know hardships in this life. We've faced problems. Some of those problems arise from our own sinful choices, our own sinful hearts, our own sinful decisions. Some of those choices are the decisions, or some of those consequences are the decisions and choices of those around us. And we have to experience the pain of their choice, or we have to experience the, the difficulty of, of their path of life. Some things are even out of our control. They're natural. Sometimes we have family members who get sick. Sometimes we're the ones getting sick. It's no secret, and I don't have to spend a whole lot of time trying to convince you that in this world there are great hardships. And in this life there's great difficulty. And just because we are Christians and born again and belong to Christ doesn't mean that they go away. We still have to endure them, right? And we still have to walk through them. And we still have to maintain our faith in them. And we still have to strive to find the peace of the Lord in them and the and the joy of the Lord in them and and, and hope in the Lord in, in the midst and the face of all these hardships and all these difficulties. And the question is how? Because, truth be told, if if we were going to be honest with ourselves and admit uh, admit this at least in our own hearts, we would say there are times, maybe more often than not, that when we face hard circumstances in life, I really struggle to find the peace of the Lord. I really struggle to experience the joy of the Lord. And I really struggle to have faith right now. And I really struggle to turn to Christ right now. In fact, that's part of our sanctification, isn't it? Not only realizing those things, but growing through them, persevering past them. That's part of being a mature Christian and maturing in the faith is to recognize that 
Right now, I don't feel the peace of the Lord. and I don't feel the joy of the Lord. And I don't have faith, but I want to. Lord, help me in this circumstance and help me in this situation and help me in this problem. Sometimes we are guilty of what we find the disciples to be guilty of in this particular passage. That when we face hardships, we instead, instead of looking to Christ, we instead look to what? Ourselves. And I wanted to begin this morning by asking you, asking you a very pointed question. What makes you confident in life? Where do you derive your confidence from? Your, your trust, your, your faith, your hope? When you face uncertainty, when you face difficulty, what do you stand upon? And for so many of us, so many people, we find ourselves standing upon our own abilities, don't we? What I can do to resolve the issue what I can do to handle the situation, what I can do to handle these circumstances around me. That's, that's where I get my confidence on, on my own answers. For some of us, it's our wealth. For some of us, it's our family. I've got family support. My family loves me. Uh, I have unity in my family. That's my confidence when I face uncertainties in life. We can go on and on down this list. Our past achievements, our future dreams and hopes, all of these things, sometimes we confuse and get in the wrong place of our hearts right and we stand upon those things for confidence and stand instead upon christ and i think for most of us i can give us a a sound answer at least most people i visit with myself and what i find to be true in my own life is when my joy and my peace and my faith and my hope in the lord is robbed from me it's often because i have a misplaced confidence it's often because I'm turning to myself in my heart and in my mind. And I'm trusting my abilities. I'm trusting my financial state. I'm, I'm trusting the people around me instead of trusting Christ with whatever particular issue I face. That's true of any and every issue that we face in life, whether it be sinful struggles that beset us and stick with us and we have to fight against our entire lives or whether that be circumstantial problems that arise from time to time. When we lose peace and faith and joy and hope, it's often because we're not looking to Jesus, right? Well, that's what we find to be true this morning. And that's why I want to preach first thing this morning. Because I know, whether you want to admit it or not, I know this truth of resetting our hearts' eyes upon Jesus instead of ourselves is vitally important for each and every one of us. Eternally important for each and every one of us. But for some of you right now, you're struggling with finding peace and faith and joy and hope and, and on and on and on and on. Here is your answer. Do the difficult work of letting go of yourself and turn to Jesus. Do the difficult work of saying, I can't do it. I have to trust you, Lord. That's what we find in Luke chapter 9, verse 37 this morning. Let's read the passage like we normally do. We will come back and walk through it piece by piece. Luke chapter 9, verse 37. Luke writes and reports. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and it will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything He was doing, Jesus said to His disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. Now Luke gives an abbreviated version of this account. Matthew and Mark both recorded as well 
And they give much more detail to the instance that Luke records here in chapter 9. And they, Matthew Mark, primarily focus upon the possession itself and the boy and the demon and the father. But Luke has a different priority in his account. He's focusing primarily upon Jesus and then the disciples and then the father and then the boy and then the demon. And he does so for a good reason. Jesus gives a stern, strong, stark rebuke here. It's a negative passage. It's a sobering passage with a positive truth in it. We begin looking at verses 37 through 40 this morning. And from these verses, we learn the severity of this particular possession. Now, Jesus has just come down off the mountain. He's just been transfigured. So for the first time and the only time, aside from his second coming, his appearance matched his, matched his nature. He was in dazzling clothing. His face was altered. He was glorious. And immediately coming down from that, he's met with this uh, demonic possession. J.C. Ryle says this about this verse and Christ coming down from the mountain to meet this demon-possessed boy. He says, Jesus soon returned to His accustomed work of doing good to a sin-stricken world. In His life on earth, to receive honor and have visions of glory was the exception. To minister to others, to heal all who were oppressed by the devil, to do acts of mercy to sinners, that was the rule. We find Christ engaging right back in what He's always done, right? This, this beautiful vision of glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, this, this beautiful picture of what it's going to be like to behold Him in heaven, this, this beautiful resemblance that He has that reflects His, His nature, He's divine, that's the exception. In fact, Christ didn't have much honor and didn't have much glory as He walked this earth, did He? He was ridiculed, He was mocked, and He was in the mess of people's lives. He was in the mess of sinful choices. He was in the mess of the hardships uh, of this, this world. And it happens again as soon as He comes off the mountain. He's in the mess of evil. And in this mess, this request is made by this Father. Now the Father makes really seven statements. Some of them seem somewhat redundant, but seven statements that show the severity of the issue and also paint the picture of just what is happening here with the boy. He says in verse 38, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. There's this word beg here. It's plea. I, I plead with you, look at my son. As we walk through these things that he mentions about his son, we come to learn it's, it's not just a plea, it's a plea of desperation. It's a begging out of a desperate heart and a desperate mind and a desperate place in life. I've exhausted all of my resources and my son's still demon-possessed. I beg you, Lord, to look at him. We begin to see the severity of the issue from the father's perspective as he describes this possession of his son. He says, I beg you to look at my son for number one, he is my only child. He's not just my only son. He's not my only son in a household full of daughters. He is my only child. I have none beside him. Now, if you're a parent, you understand what that statement means. And even if you're not a parent yet, you have some idea and some perspective of the significance of this statement. In this particular day and age, an only child would mean my, my only hope for when I get older my only hope for provision, my only hope for inheritance, my only hope for my name carrying on, my only hope for, for someone to partake in the family business. But even for us today, we think of our only child and we think of our little ones, even if yours is grown. And we think back to the dependency that they once had on us or still have on us. How innocent they are. And when they are in pain and when they suffer, you are in a desperate state to correct it, aren't you? And sometimes we're just like this father. We're in a desperate state to help our little ones, our loved ones, get out of their suffering and their pain. But yet we're like the father and we can't as desperately as we want to. This father is at the bottom of the rung. He's at his last drop of hope with Christ. He's saying, my only child is suffering. My only child 
is in pain. Number two, we know why. Verse 39, the second thing he says that shows the severity of this possession. The Spirit seizes him. You can take note on the word uh, seize. He's held captive. He's imprisoned. He's arrested by this evil spirit. He can't break free. He doesn't know liberty anymore. He's under the control of this evil spirit. Demon possession is never a good thing. Never. And here we're reminded of, of just how severe it really is. We're not just controlled here. Or this, this boy's not just controlled by um, impure influences or evil influences. He's controlled by evil itself. He also says, number 3, verse 39, since he's seized by this evil spirit, he suddenly cries out. He doesn't have control over what he says. He screams. He's in misery. He's in pain. He's the very embodiment of madness. Before, the spirit convulses him. It throws him around. It throws him to the ground. It grinds his muscles together. It grinds his bones together. It brings him down. It spins him physically. Number five, he foams at the mouth. There's some kind of chemical reaction going on here with my child. If you're a medical student or in the medical profession, you probably know much more than I do the significance of that. But we do know what Matthew records in chapter 17. He records these as symptoms of epilepsy. In other words, my son is seizuring because of this evil spirit. Number six, shatters him. The language, it breaks him. It's destroying him. It's ruining his spirit. It's breaking his mind. It's shattering his body. And lastly, he says in verse 39, probably the, the best summary of the whole situation, the spirit will hardly leave him. It won't go away. We've tried everything we can. We've gone to medicine. We've turned to, to medicine of the day and, and people of the day and wisdom of the day. Verse 40, I even begged your disciples and they couldn't do anything about it. Now, if you remember at the beginning of this chapter, it's very reasonable for the Father to ask the disciples for help. In verses 1-6, through six, Jesus has commissioned the disciples to have power over demons, cast out demons to heal and cure diseases and to go out and do so. So for months, the disciples have had this ability, and for months, they've been doing this very work, casting out demons. And yet, this Father says, I even turned to your disciples, and they couldn't do anything about it. We get this sense of desperation coming from His heart, don't we? We get this sense that all my resources have been spent. I'm, I'm now hopeless. I'm now helpless. I can't do anything for my child who's being controlled by evil. In fact, I don't think anybody can do anything about it. Your disciples can't even do anything about it. You, Jesus, are my last hope. And like so many people that turn to the Lord, He is their last hope. Oh, how we may need to take a, a note here to turn to Christ first and not waste our time going through our own schemes and abilities Jesus, You're all I have left. I beg You, look at my son. Just lay Your eyes on him and you'll see. Just, just look at him. Matthew and Mark record that this evil spirit even throws him into the fire and throws him into the water. He's been uh, trying to destroy him. He's almost drowned. He's, he's got burns on him. Look, Just look at my son. You'll see how severe this possession is. Well, the father's in this place where he's almost thinking that the demon has won. He's facing such hardship and such difficulty in his life over his child where he thinks, I'm not even sure you can do this, Jesus. It will hardly leave him. Let that phrase sink into your heart because that's how the father views the situation. 
It will hardly end. Well, that's the severity of the possession. Verse 41, Jesus responds in a very strange and peculiar way. He gives a very serious rebuke. We have not seen Him respond this way in the Gospel of Luke. Up until this point, everybody that's come to Jesus for healing or help or or has a child that's died, Jesus has graciously helped and graciously uh, delivered. Here, He rebukes. There's a problem. Now, the, the rebuke itself is interesting and in Luke's account, somewhat difficult to discern, I, I would admit. Because Jesus makes this in a broad sense. If you look in verse 41, He answers the Father as the Father's in, in this low state of life. He responds and says, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? There's a sense there of Patience running out. A sense there of frustration, of disappointment, of displeasure. Now let me tell you, and understand this clearly, God has perfect patience. But His patience is not eternal. One day the wicked will answer. And the Lord's mercy and patience will stop. Respond to the Lord today in faith for salvation because His Patience is not eternal towards the ungodly and those who don't have faith in Him. Today it is perfect. That's what Peter tells us. He hasn't come back yet. Don't don't count slowness of the Lord as a wrong thing. He's waiting so that people may reach repentance. But there's a sense here in verse 41 in this rebuke where, where this patience may be wearing a little bit thin, if I can say it that way. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? But he's making this statement and he makes this rebuke in a general sense. And if you know the the Scriptures, you know this statement has been made in the Old Testament. You know this statement's been made in the New Testament in reference to Israel. Israel is a faithless and twisted generation as God calls them time and time and time again. And, And Jesus seems to be making that very exact statement. It's a broad statement. You're a faithless and twisted, not just person, generation what Jesus is doing here is he's taking this rebuke and this prescribed problem upon the generation of Israel and applying it to a few specific people he's looking at them and he's saying yeah I've called Israel a faithless and twisted generation and let me tell you something you're just like them you're just as faithless and just as twisted as the people around you The question is, though, with such a broad and general rebuke, who in this passage is he applying it to? Who is he rebuking? The disciples haven't spoke up in this text. Just the Father. So who is he addressing? I believe and would contend he's addressing both the Father and the disciples. And we have to look at Matthew and Mark's account to understand why. If you look, let's talk about the Father first. Look at Mark chapter 9. I you to flip over there just so you can see that I'm not making it up. Mark chapter 9. We get an, uh, an even clearer sense of the Father's desperation in His circumstance. And, and let me just say something. We might see ourselves in the father of the boy possessed this morning. In verse 19 of Mark chapter 9, Jesus issues the very same rebuke. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him, the boy, to me. Verse 20, And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth, just as was described. Verse 21, Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And the father said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. And then notice what he says. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
That is a wrong statement to make to Jesus. And Jesus takes full advantage to expose why. He says in verse 23, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. The Father makes it in passing because it's a, a, a revelation of His heart. Lord, I'm, I'm in a bad spot here with my son and there's nothing I can do. So if you can do anything, I'd really appreciate it. And how many times is that the, our prayer, whether we word it that way or not? How many times do we word prayers very theologically, accurately, correctly, and yet our heart says, Lord, if you can. Jesus is astounded by this. And He says, if you can, I'm the one who just fed 5,000. What do you think? I'm the one who just brought a child back to life. What do you think? I'm the one that you might not have been there, but I was transfigured on the mountain. Reader, what do you think the answer is? All things are possible for one who believes. It's one of the only, if not the only times Jesus calls somebody to have faith before He'll heal. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said in such a a sincere, honest, and beautiful statement. I believe. Help my unbelief. Well, that shows us the Father, doesn't it? There's a rebuke coming in verse 41 of Luke chapter 9. Oh, faithless generation. Who's the faithless? It is the Father. Whom Jesus says in Mark 9, didn't believe. Was coming to Jesus as a last hope, a last resort, a last option and unsure if that would work. So when the Father says in Luke chapter 9, this demon will hardly leave him, He's essentially saying, I'm not sure if you can do it, Jesus. The strength of this evil spirit is beyond me. His confidence was misplaced, wasn't it? He was viewing the situation from his own perspective. Viewing the situation from his own abilities. Viewing the situation from what he knew and what he could perceive and not turning to Christ. But what about the disciples? Let's look now in Matthew chapter 17. If you still have your finger in Mark 9, keep it there. We'll come back to that. Matthew chapter 17. Very same account happening. Now we look at the disciples. After Jesus has cast out the demon and healed the boy and given him back to his father, in verse 19, the disciples speak. They came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? You gave us the ability to do it in Luke 9, 1 through 6, cast out demon and cure diseases. Why? Why couldn't we do it? And Jesus answers them in verse 20. Why? Because of your little faith. And then he enters into the great um, illustration. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Why could we not cast it out? Your little faith. Look in Mark 9. The disciples ask the very same question in verse 28. Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus says in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, you didn't pray. You didn't ask. And what's required of prayer? Faith. If you don't have faith, you don't pray. Jesus looks at the disciples and they ask, how come we couldn't handle this situation? He came to us and, and we've done this before. We've done this for months now. Why couldn't we do this one? You didn't have faith in Me. You didn't turn to me. That's very revealing, isn't it? Perhaps the disciples thought, you know what, this particular formula has worked for us in the past. Let's do it now on this guy and we'll cast him out in a heartbeat. And instead of trusting and having confidence in Christ and His ability through them, they had confidence in their ability to practice a particular formula. Maybe these groups of words worked before to cast out these demons. And so if we just say these words, it'll work. Or I've cast out demons much stronger, much more violent than this, this one. Let me just do this real quick. 
And we can picture the scene, can't we? Come out of him, and nothing's happened. Come out of him, and nothing's happened. Come out of him, come out of him, come out of him over and over and over to the point where the disciples finally have to say, I have to give up. I don't, I don't know what to do. Lord, why couldn't we do it? You didn't trust me. You had a misplaced confidence. So we find here the father and the disciples are both at fault in this particular case, in this scenario, because both of them trusted in their abilities to handle the situation when all along it was Christ that they needed to turn to. The disciples, although they had the privilege of furthering the kingdom of God through the power of the Lord, had forgotten a very important principle that everything they ever had came from Jesus in the first place. The power to cure diseases came from Jesus in the first place. The power to cast out demons came from Jesus in the first place. You can never trust yourself to handle life's situations. It's always Jesus. So here, church, is the very glaring, glaring application, obvious application for us, isn't it? Your peace, hope, joy, faith is robbed when you try to face life's issues in your own strength and not that of Jesus. Every one of us faces desperate situations like this. Every one of us can picture ourselves in the life and position of the Father right here. I can't do this. I can't handle this. I can't face this. I don't have the answer for this. I don't have the strength for this, the power for this, the ability for this. And every one of us have responded to situations just like the disciples. I'll take care of it. I can handle it. I can fix this issue. I can resolve that conflict. I can face down this hardship only to come to the place of realizing I can't handle this. When I was falling down the steepest slope into depression last year, Depression is probably a more gradual fall. Then you get to the cliff and you really tank at some point in time. I was tanking. And I remember we, we were, um, it was June 5th, that Sunday. And that Sunday night we were going out into the neighborhoods across the street to invite people to VBS and, and knock on doors and pass out flyers. And I said, I'm going to stay here in case any groups come back and they need flyers. Well, I stayed here and everybody went out, but what people didn't realize was I was here weeping, bawling, looking through my Bible alone here in my office and on the porch while you all were out passing flyers, trying to find some kind of answer to my problems. And the truth was, I had been fighting depression in my own strength for a long time at that point. Then Monday came, and I had no answer. And I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. Tuesday came, and I thought, I don't think I can get up and do a Bible study on Wednesday. I, I don't have anything in me. Wednesday came, and I called Rod and Larry and said, I need to resign. I can't do a Bible study. I can't open a Bible right now. I, I, I can't do anything. I had tried to face depression in my own strength. It was only after the Lord provided various things and then the glorious book of the, of the book of Psalms that I began trusting Christ with everything. I don't care what I look like anymore, Lord. The shame that depression may bring, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to admit everything to you. I'm going to confess everything to you. I'm going to lay everything to you, church. Let me tell you, that is when, even in the throes of great difficulty in your life, that is where you find peace. That is where you find joy. That is where you find hope. That is where you begin to find faith. And I tell you from experience, don't be the disciples here. They did a lot of things very rightly. And they did a lot of things very poorly, just like us. And here they did something poorly. They trusted in their ability to heal and cast out a demon. And Jesus says, that's not, that's not what happens. 
You derive your strength from Me. Your confidence from Me. Your hope from Me. When you face down life's situations, let me tell you, let me exhort you with great passion and conviction, turn to Christ. Turn to Jesus. And you may not know the next step. And you may not know tomorrow. And you may not know six months. And you may not know this afternoon. But Jesus will take care of it. And as we've talked about with Joseph and on Wednesday nights in the book of Genesis, in prison for years, a slave in Potiphar's house for years, then he leads Egypt and can forgive his brothers. How does he do it? Because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I trust in the Lord's control over this world. So I may not know how this demon's going to get cast out or how my son's going to be taken care of or, or what tomorrow holds for me, but I know God is in control. I will trust and turn in Him and experience peace in the midst of chaos and joy in the midst of sorrow and hope in the midst of darkness and faith in the midst of confusion. That is what it means to walk with Christ. I tell you this morning, turn to Jesus. So that's the serious rebuke. And I guess I'd better address the rebuke itself actually before we move on. He says, you faithless and twisted generation, two very piercing words there. Well, faithless, we know neither one of them, the Father nor the disciples, were exercising faith as they tried to face down this uh, demon possession. Twisted generations, somewhat interesting, isn't it? And I believe it's more applicable to the disciples' reaction. You had taken something I had instilled within you and you twisted it to be your own. You quit trusting me and started trusting self. And that is us. We twist the things God has given us. We are faithless when God has proved Himself through us over and over and over again. You know, we, we're just like the disciples, aren't we? We have, in verse 20, along with Peter, confessed Jesus to be the Christ. We've seen Him feed 5,000. We've seen Him heal people. We've seen Him work miracles. We've seen Him remain faithful. We've seen Him minister to our hearts. We've seen Him grow us from the person we once were to the person we're becoming. We've, we've witnessed all of that, and yet we still are prone and tempted and by the life being faithless. This severe rebuke, church, it's a time, timeless rebuke that extends to us all right when we need it. You see, it's not just that you need to quit trusting in self and start trusting in Christ to face life's hardships and difficulties so that you have peace, joy, faith, and hope, and on and on and on. It's actually that it's wrong to trust in self and not trust in Christ. Actually, every time we turn to our own abilities, our own strength, our own wealth, whatever, to handle life's difficulties, instead of turning to the Lord, we deserve the rebuke. Don't belittle the Lord. And don't rob His honor. Let Him prove Himself in your life to be trustworthy. Well, that's the severe rebuke. Next, in verses 42 and 43, we see the strength of Christ real quickly. Verse 42, While He was coming, the demon-possessed boy, the demon threw Him down to the ground and convulsed Him. So Jesus can see exactly what the Father has said is true. At the sight of Jesus, this demon starts throwing a temper tantrum, convulsing, harming this boy right in front of the Lord's eyes. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. It's just like the demon possession for the demon that was seizing the guy and making him live among the tombs in chapter 8. And breaking the chains. And nobody could bind Him. Well, here the Father uses the same mentality. No one can cast Him out. He's hardly leaving my Son. It's severe. And I don't know if you can handle it. And Jesus says, I can handle it. Be gone. And at the Word of Jesus, the demon is cast out, rebuked. The Son is healed. And the Lord does what He does best. Restores the boy and hands him to his Father. Look at my strength. It's a show of power, isn't it? Your greatest enemy is no match for my words. 
Your greatest hardship, your greatest moment of desperation, your greatest moment of pain is nothing to me. I can handle it in an instant. I can handle it immediately. I can resolve it completely. Mark says Jesus looks at the demon and says, leave the boy alone and never enter him again. What you think is daunting and, and unhelpable, what, what you think can't be corrected, Jesus deals with permanently, forever. And it's not just a show of power, is it? It's a show of great and sincere love. You are a faithless and twisted generation. And you don't know me because you don't think I can handle this. You have no idea who you're speaking to. You have no idea the power and the glory I possess and the authority that dwells within me. But you know what? Bring your son here. I'm going to heal him anyway. Bring him here and I'll, I'll take care of it. I think it's outstanding, ridiculous that you would say, if you can handle this, would you please do something? I can handle it plus more. It's not just a show of power. It's a show of patience. It's a show of compassion. It's a show of, of love and, and sincerity. Even though you are a faithless and twisted generation, I'll take care of the boy and give him back to you. I will meet your momentary greatest need right now. Nothing matters to you in life except for the healing of your boy. I'll take care of you. What a picture of Christ. No wonder in verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. It's the same thing that happened when He healed the, the uh, cast out the demon among the tombs in chapter 8. Only that time everybody was afraid of Him because of the power He displayed. Here, He displays such power over this demon that people are astonished at the majesty of God. I first read that studying for this passage. I thought, you should have been on the mountain. You think this is something? You should have seen the transfiguration. Well now, not only did His appearance match His nature on the mountain, now His works prove His nature in the valley. But it gets even better than that. And bear with me just for a moment because I think you, you want to see this. He's not, we not only see the severity of the possession, a serious rebuke, and the strength of Christ, Fourthly and finally, in verses 43-45, we see a steadfastness to the mission in the heart and life of the Lord. Look at the end of verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything He was doing, I mean, just, just immediately after handling the situation, everybody's still in awe and marveling. Jesus says to His disciples in verse 44, in the same moment, same hour, same breath, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. You know what I find to be so remarkable about that? Is Jesus has just issued this stern rebuke about the Father's lack of faith and the disciples' lack of faith. And He says at the end, I'm still going to go to the cross for you. You've witnessed me feed 5,000. Maybe this is, is more significant for the disciples. You've seen me perform all these miracles. You've heard me teach. You've eaten dinner with me. You've slept under the same roof as me. You've walked the same paths as me. You've been with me. And so it's so much more displeasing and stinging when you lack faith. But I'm still going to the cross for you. Hear what I'm saying. I'm frustrated because you tried to cast that demon out on, in your own power and you didn't turn to me, but I'm still going to die for you. I'm still going to Jerusalem for you. I'm still going to be delivered over. I'm still going to be crucified. I'm still going to be buried. Even for you, faithless, twisted generation. We look at ourselves and we find ourselves to be this faithless, twisted generation at times, right? We, we find uh, the sinful flesh of our hearts rising up to try to take the place of Christ in our lives. We know we're guilty of that, right? I don't, I don't have to 
meet with all of us and I don't have to stand up here and confess my own shortcomings to say I'm guilty of trusting myself over Christ at times. And I battle that temptation to do that in the face of hardships. We all do that. But here's the glorious reality. Christ went to the cross so we don't have to do that. Christ went to the cross for the faithless and twisted generation to redeem them and restore them, prove Himself faithful so they can trust Him. I think it was Wednesday night we were visiting and I asked the question, does Christ have to prove Himself to us for us to trust Him? And the answer was, hasn't He already on the cross? He has. You faithless and twisted generation, what do you need to trust Me? What do you need to bring all your hardships to Me? Maybe it's the cross. Maybe you need to look at it and realize, you know what? God has not left me alone to figure things out in this world. Maybe you need to look at it and realize, you know what? God must love me if He's died on the cross for me. And if He loves me that much, surely He's not going to neglect the hardships I face in life. Hasn't He invested too much in me already? Hasn't He invested too much at Calvary? Find that we may need to be like the Father. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me when I forget to trust You, when I neglect You. Help me when I think You can't handle something in my life. Help me when I try to take matters into my own hands. Help my unbelief because You've proven Yourself to me at the cross. You've proven that You're trustworthy. You've proven that You're strong enough. You've proven that You're faithful. You've proven that You care. You've proven that You love. Jerusalem is the glaring testimony of that. And if you can handle my greatest need at the cross, my separation from God, if you can take my sin upon you at the cross, you can take my wayward child. You can take my sinful struggles. You can take my financial situation. You can take my everyday worries and anxieties. If you go to Jerusalem for me, there's nothing I want to keep back from you. I lay it all in your hands. Church, we have a Savior we can trust. That's what we're getting at this morning. That's, that's what I want to tell you today. We have a Savior we can trust. Each and every one of us face hardships and difficulties in this life, and you're probably facing them right now. It's not going to take you a millisecond to think of something you're worrying about today. You can trust it with Jesus. It may not be resolved like you want. It may not be resolved as you expect. Let me tell you, our Lord, if you trust Him, will see you through. He will bring you to the shores of heaven in glory. And all the temporary problems of this life seem to slowly fade away in the light of Christ, right? And as He wells up within us the glories of heaven and the the beauty of walking with Him and, and relating to Him, all these things that we're so desperate about seem to be put in a rightful place in comparison to Him. We have gone long this morning, but we've gone long for a good reason, I believe. Because we need to see, just like last week we needed our spiritual reading glasses on, this week we needed our hearts perhaps turned in a better direction. Because if you're anything like me for a long time in life, you walk down a path that will not help you. I've walked down my own path in my own shoes and my own strength for far too long and now I need my heart turned back to Christ. Your heart can be turned back to Christ. You don't have to face your problems alone. At Jerusalem, Christ proved He's capable of handling not just our greatest problem, but all of our problems. Perhaps this morning you have the problem of guilt. Not just guilt and something that you've done, but you know you're guilty before God. You're an unbeliever. And you evaluate God's standards of judgment and you realize, I am guilty, God, before you. And I'm in a worse place than that father with a demon-possessed boy. I cannot meet your standards. Not an ounce of good will make me right before you. 
And you need to turn to Christ for your greatest problem. That is your problem of unbelief. You need salvation. He went to the cross for that. Maybe you are a child of God by His grace this morning and you need to say, Lord, I trust You for salvation, but today, help my unbelief. I want this issue resolved. And I've been trying to do it in my own strength. Help me give it to You. We have a Savior who will do that. As I was contemplating this morning about preaching first thing, very last minute decision, I finally came to the conclusion that one, I think the Lord wanted me to, if I could discern that. And two, we still have songs to sing this morning. And what better to fuel our worship to Him in song than to see this glorious truth in Scripture. To know that I can relinquish all things to Him and trust Him even with the most minute mundane details of my life. And to remember His love and care for us at the cross. Now when I sing, I sing with a little bit more ump, a little bit more motivation, a little bit more sincerity. That's what it means to worship. To look at Christ in the lyrics of a song. To know what He has revealed about Himself to us. And to give Him the glory due His name for that revelation. We have just been revealed, had revealed to us a Savior who cares and is capable and concerned about meeting your needs. Specifically salvation. And then every need thereafter. Let's worship appropriately for that. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up. And you guys are going to stand. And we are going to worship. And continue on this morning briefly. God, I do thank You for Your Word. What it means to us. And how significant it is that we can open it and see people be corrected, people mess up and and get rebuked, but we can learn a positive truth for why they were rebuked. They didn't trust in You. How often is, is that me, God? I look at things all the time, every day, and I think, what am I going to do to correct that? I find myself not just in that moment wrong, but having a mindset of trying to walk this life in my own strength. God, would You correct us of that this morning? And help us to be a people who walk in the strength that You provide. Facing down in confidence all of those hardships and difficulties because of Your control over all things. And if there be here any that are unbelievers who heard this word this morning, God, I pray they would come and give their life to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.